Well, good morning. Start off with a question for you. Where do you turn when things go south? Uh, what's your, you know, break glass in case of emergency move? Is, is there someone you call? Is there a, a, a secret weapon you turn to? <coughs> you know, since I'm asking this question in church, you obviously know the right answer is always going to be Jesus, right? And actually, that really is the best answer. No matter what situation you are facing, your best move is always to turn to Jesus. But what's that look like? How does that work in the reality of your life? What do you do when you find yourself in the midst of a situation and you have a need for God to meet you in that moment. How do you turn to him? Is there a, a prayer that you typically pray? Is there a verse that you recite, a, a phrase you utter? Is there something you do or, or some place that you go that for you kind of defines what it means to turn to the Lord in the midst of needing his help? Well, this morning in 1 Samuel 4, we're going to see that the nation of Israel, under Eli's leadership, well, they'd come to a place of confusion. You see, when they, when they thought of turning to the Lord, they, they had gotten all caught up in the symbol of God's presence, and they seemed to have misplaced the reality of God's presence. We call that kind of confusion religiosity. It's thinking that, that religious items or symbols are imbued with God's power. It's thinking that certain practices or habits or places are really where God is to be found. It's thinking that there's something that, that we do or some way that we can tap into God's power when what we need is God himself. Well, with that in mind, let's take a look at our passage, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Grab your Bible, uh, find that chapter, 1 cha Samuel chapter 4. And if you'll do this, if you'll stand, I'll do the reading. You can follow along. And we're going to look at the entirety of chapter 4 this morning. Here's what it says. Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle encamped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the ark of the covenant of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. 
The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, what is this loud shout in the Hebrews camp? When the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A God has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us. And nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage. and Be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of Israel's foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjaminite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn, and there was dirt on his head. When he arrived, uh, there was Eli sitting in his chair beside the road waiting because he was anxious about the ark of God. When the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked, why this commotion? The man quickly came and reported to Eli. At the time, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. As she was dying, the women taking care of her said, don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father, as we read this, I pray that you would help us uh, to really understand, to see what went wrong in the the thinking of these ancient worshipers of God. And God, help us to see if in any way, if at any point we are, are making that same mistake. God, we don't want to lose focus on the substance of who you are because of the trappings that surround our worship of you. God, we want to walk and live in relationship with you and experience the power of God in our lives. 
And so, Lord, help us to see, help us to perceive, and help us to respond. Speak to us, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. For those of you who have been with us over the last month, the, the first three chapters of 1 Samuel have focused, uh, for the most part, on young Samuel, on his story. And, but now he's going to disappear for several chapters, and the focus is going to shift uh, first to the demise of Eli and his wicked sons, but then uh, to setting the scene in regards to the, the spiritual perception, kind of the, the spiritual temperature of the nation of the nation and of the culture in which Samuel is going to be serving as a prophet and a ju- as a judge. Uh, what we're going to see in, in chapters four, five, and six is that Samuel is going to be leading a people who live in a world that is very comfortable with practicing the forms of religion, but that does not seem to have a very good grasp about living life in relationship with God. In other words, Samuel's world was a lot like ours. Let's begin looking there in verse 1. Uh, with the tribes of Israel coming under attack. It says there that Israel went out to meet the Philistines, another people group in battle. Uh, The Philistines camped at Ebenezer, or the Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek, uh, just a few miles apart from each other. The Philistines lined up in battle against Israel, and as the battle progressed, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Now, the Philistines arrived to the region of Canaan about the same time as the people of Israel did. Uh, But the Philistines came with uh, relatively advanced Greek weapons and armament. Uh, Having sailed across the Mediterranean, probably uh, originating from the island of Crete, uh, the Philistines were looking for a land that they could conquer and then claim as their own. Uh, They started off trying that in Egypt. That didn't go very well for them. And so eventually they settled along the Mediterranean coastland of Israel. But now they're moving in from the coast. They're seeking to advance inland. And where they meet the Israelites, they're a mere 20 miles from Shiloh. Uh, So Israel goes out to meet them in battle, but they lose. Uh, They lose badly. Look at verse 3. When the troops returned to camp, uh, the elders of Israel begin asking questions. What went wrong? Uh, They ask this. Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? And they come up with a solution. Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. And then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. I want you to notice three things here. Uh, First of all, Israel's leaders recognize that something has gone very wrong. Uh, Secondly, they understand that their problem has to do with their relationship with God. And third, though they knew that the problem was with their relationship with God, they didn't seek out the cause of that problem before they settled on a solution. Now, that's a mode of action that never turns out well. You've got to know what's causing a problem before you come up with a solution to that problem. At least you do if you want your solution to help. 
Uh, so Israel's leaders, uh, they do rightly recognize that something is very wrong. I mean, after all, they had a promise from God. Uh, think back all the way to Joshua chapter one, there in verse five, many other places as well. Uh, God says this. He says, I'm going to give you this land. And literally, he says, no one is going to be able to stand against you. And no one's going to be able to stand against you. This land is yours. I'm giving it to you. And I am going to fight on your behalf. Well, the leaders of Israel noticed that there was a problem because God did not fight on their behalf. That's why the Philistines won and Israel lost. And that's why they described their problem the way that they do. Did you notice how they put it? They said that God was the one who was defeating them. They didn't go in and say, hey, why were the Philistines able to defeat us? But they, they said this point blank. Why did God defeat us? This is, this is an issue between us and God, not just an issue of armament or of armies or of weapons. And the problem was that for some reason, God was no longer fighting for them. And the question was, why? Why was that going on? Well, the answer is that they had turned away from God. They had turned away from closely following the Lord. And they had allowed the worship there at Shiloh. Remember all that we've looked at in the last three chapters. And they had allowed the worship of God to become corrupted. And they had allowed open and known sin, all that Eli's sons had been doing, to go unpunished. But notice as well here that that never comes up in this conversation. They never ask the Lord, Lord, why aren't you fighting for us? They never seek the Lord. Instead, they decide to go get the Ark of the Covenant to bring it into battle with them. So what was that? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was that gold-covered wooden box, that, uh, that box that held the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. And it had a jar full of, of manna in it. And it had Aaron's miraculous staff that had budded. And it was above this box when it resided there within the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle that God's presence would appear. What they failed to grasp is what they needed was God. They, they needed God, not the box above which God's presence sometimes appeared. Uh, what they did not understand is the ark was just a box. It was just a box. It, what made it special was God and his presence. The box itself could not help them at all. Uh, but they were locked into a mindset of religiosity. They were not walking in relationship with God. And so uh, they sent for the box and they assumed that that would do the trick. Look at verse four. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back. And I love the way that, that Samuel records this. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. I think the thinking of the people who sent for the box is they were thinking of it as a box. Bring the box that has God in it. And, but what Samuel is saying is, listen, it, listen, think about what you're getting. It's the Ark of the Covenant. The covenant, that, that promise-based relationship between you and God, that promise where, where, where you said, God, we are going to worship you and we are going to submit ourselves to you and you are going to provide everything we need. 
and you're going to fight for us and you're going to give us land. And it's that promise between us and the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the God of all creation who is enthroned above the cherubim. It's like Samuel is saying, guys, it's just a box. You need God. You need the God of the box, not the box of the God. But they send for the box and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're there and they they bring the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. Now, all of Israel seems to have fallen into this mindset of religiosity. Uh, they thought that God's presence was tied to, uh, was maybe contained by the box. And they, they thought for sure that if they brought the box, God would have to come with it. And so when the box came into the camp, the soldiers begin to celebrate. I mean, they had the box. Surely, surely they would win now. And their celebration was heard loud and clear by the Philistines. The Philistines ascribed to the same sort of thinking, the same sort of philosophy. And they hear and they ask, what is this great shout in the Hebrew camp? And the Philistines discovered that the Ark of the Lord, that this, this magic box of the Hebrews had entered the camp. And what do the Philistines do? They begin to panic. They say a God has entered the camp. And woe to us. They say nothing like this has happened so far. In other words, we've been winning, but now this is a game changer, they say. So woe to us. Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods that they keep in that box? These are the gods, they say, that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. See, the, the Philistines, just like the Israelites, had bought into the whole uh, thinking of religiosity. Uh, they thought that God could be kept in a box, that he could be carried from one place to another, that he could be manipulated to do whatever it is that you want him to do. <laughs> it's not all that different from how we think about God sometimes, is it? Uh, far too often... Maybe we don't view God as being in a box, but we view him as operating much like a vending machine. You know, if I put in the proper payment, then I get to select whatever it is that I want to get from God. I make my payment to God, then I withdraw from him whatever it is that, that I desire to get from him. He's like a vending machine, or maybe he's like a, a magic genie. You know, if you just rub God's lamp, if you apply enough faith, then you can make him give you whatever it is that you want. That's how they were viewing God. And so when the Philistines saw that the Israelites had brought their God from Shiloh, and because of all the incredibly wild stories that they had heard about all that Israel's God had done to, to free them from Egypt, the, the Philistines were terrified. Now, the Philistines did not have their historical facts quite straight. Uh, the plagues actually happened in Egypt, not in the wilderness. Uh, but they understood 
that it was the God of the Hebrews that had utterly destroyed the Egyptians. And now they were thinking, now that the Hebrews had brought their God with them to battle, they were next in line to be destroyed. One of the Philistines gets some courage, gives quite a, a locker room speech. I think this is actually the same speech that the coach of the Vikings gave to his team between the third and fourth quarter yesterday. <laughs> Said this, show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. After all, any God that can be put in a box can't be that big. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Each man fled to his tent. That means they abandoned the army. They ran home and the slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. And the ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, both died. Over and over again, beginning even in Genesis, all through Exodus, Leviticus, and in Deuteronomy, the Lord warned Israel. He warned his people that if they turned away from him, that he would hand them over to their enemies. In other words, he would remove his protective hand. God was shielding them, protecting them, fighting for them. But if they chose to turn away, if they told God to get lost, God said, I will let you have your way. And I will let you face your enemies on your own. And that's exactly what happens here is God allows Israel to face the Philistines entirely on their own. And that did not go well, at least not for the Israelites. They were soundly and tragically defeated. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that Hophni and Phinehas, these wicked sons of Eli, who had led the way in leading Israel away from God, is that they were also the ones who were leading the ark into battle, and really were leading the nation right into God's judgment for their sin. And just as God had said he would do back in 1 Samuel 2, verse 34, Hophni and Phinehas both died that day. Now, you might ask me, how can we know that, that any of these things actually happened? I am so glad you asked that because <laughs> I have an answer. And it's an answer that I get kind of excited about because it has to do with archaeology. Uh, you know, the reason that we believe these things happened is because that's what the evidence points to. Understand this. In the late 1970s, a, a pottery fragment uh, with five lines of extremely ancient text was found in a dig at Itzbet Sarta. Uh, that's an ancient ruin just outside of Tel Aviv, Israel. The text proved to be very difficult to decipher. Here's why. It was incredibly ancient. It was a very primitive form of the Hebrew language. In the end, it seems uh, that what was written on this pottery shard was an ancient account uh, of this very battle, recounting and not only the, the bringing of the ark from Shiloh, but the capture of the ark by the Philistines, even mentioning Hophni, by his name. 
this text written thousands of years ago, is the oldest known extra-biblical reference to an Old Testament event. So when you ask me why I believe the Bible, I'm not going to tell you, well, that's just how I was raised. If you ask me why I believe the Bible, I'm not going to tell you because I get, a, I get a warm feeling in my tummy when I think about believing it. When you ask me why I believe the Bible, I'm going to tell you because it's true. Because the evidence points to the reality that the things that Scripture talks about actually took place. Well, verse 12, that same day, a Benjaminite, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, part of Israel, ran away from the battle and came to Shiloh. Clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. Uh, probably not a torn clothes and dirty head because of the battle. Uh, probably those were things that he did to himself on his way in order to be an outward expression of his mourning, of his grief over what has taken place. And he comes to bring word and to bring warning to the people there at Shiloh because Shiloh was the next stop for the Philistine army. Shiloh would be where the Philistine army would go next and they would destroy everything there. Verse 13, when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair beside the road waiting because he was anxious about the ark of God. And take note of that. Take notice that everyone that it talks about from this point forward, they are most concerned about the ark of God, even though they had other things to be concerned about in regards to this battle. I mean, Eli's two sons were there. And yet what they were really focused on, what they were really concerned about was the box. Because that box, I think, had become and not just symbolic of their God. I think much worse, it had become an idol. It had become the object of their worship. They thought that the box had power. That's why they went to get it. The ark was what they were most concerned about. Look partway through verse 13. The man entered the city to give a report. The entire city cries out. Eli hears. He asks for an explanation. The man came quickly and reported to Eli. Uh, understand, Eli at that point was 98 years old and was completely blind. So the man tells Eli who he is. He says, I, I came from the battle. I fled to here today. And Eli asked him what happened. And the messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. Not Israel has defeated the Philistines. And not even Israel has engaged the Philistines, but they have fled. And there was a great slaughter among the people. Many of the soldiers lost. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're both dead. And the ark of God has been captured. So the man tells the tragic story. Israel lost the battle. And many, many had died. Eli's sons, they were dead. But worst of all, worst of all in their eyes, the ark had been captured. And verse 18 tells us that when he mentioned the ark of God... Notice this, not when he mentioned Eli's sons, 
And not when he mentioned the 30,000 who had perished, but when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. The news about the ark pushed Eli over the edge. It was more than he could take. But it wasn't just Eli. Look there, verse 19, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, one of those two who had died. She was pregnant. She's about to bring a child into the world. She was about to give birth. And when she heard news about the capture of God's ark, that's primary, and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth. Labor pains had come upon her. But worse than that, as she was dying. And so she, she has lost the will to live. And the women try to cheer her up, tell her, hey, listen, you've given birth to a son, but she doesn't seem to care. She doesn't really respond to that. In fact, she names the child Ichabod. Okay, not only is that an ugly sounding name, I'm sorry if your name is Ichabod for more than one reason. It's a name also that means the glory has departed, okay? The glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and husband. And then she accentuates it. She says the glory has departed from Israel. Why? Because the ark of God has been captured. (laughs) Even this woman, now a widow, her husband having been killed in the battle. This woman who has just delivered a child into the world, a child who will now be fatherless, she is more concerned that the ark of God has been captured than she is that her husband has just died. Of course, thinking about who Phineas was, maybe this is not entirely surprising. He, he was not a great husband. Uh, if you remember from earlier chapters, he had been unfaithful to his wife. And yet we, we find at the close of this chapter a scene that is just utterly and absolutely desolate. And it's about to get worse for them. The Philistines are going to come and destroy all that's there. But that's what happens when you turn away from the living God and begin worshiping instead a wooden box covered with gold or anything else that we might choose to worship instead of God. Even if that thing is is something that for us is an association with God or a symbol of God or, or a part of our worship of God. When we allow ourselves to put our focus upon anything and to begin to look to, to part of the, the stuff of God instead of to the reality of God, we're going to get off track and tragically off track. What we need to seek after is genuine, submitted, obedient relationship with God. Not empty participation in the practices of religion. You know, come to church. It won't save you. 
being really good won't save you. Knowing the Bible, even knowing it really well, can't save you. <laughs> being a pastor can't save anyone. Feeling good uh, about how it is that you're living your life, that doesn't save you. Not even serving in children's ministry can save you. Though I think you do get bonus points. I'm not sure. What saves us? Well, Paul explains it very clearly in, in Ephesians chapter 2. There in verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, For you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. We are saved by what Christ did upon the cross, not upon, by anything that we do. Well, we've got to understand that clearly and distinctly. We are saved by what God has done, not by what it is that we do. Paul says this, we are saved by grace and we are saved through faith. We are saved through faith. And Paul says this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not something that we do. It's something that, that God has done. It's not about works, okay? We're not saved because we perform well and so that no one can boast, Paul says, but we are saved through faith. But what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be saved by grace through faith? What does it mean to put our faith in Christ? I mean, it's... It's more than just an invisible act of the will. It's not just an intellectual or emotional experience that we have. But it is, it is that invisible act of the will that is made visible by our actions. It's only in putting our faith in Christ, not just in theory, but in reality. Uh, trusting him not only with our eternity, but trusting him with how it is that we then live our lives day in and day out. Putting faith in Christ means submitting ourselves to him. And that's, that's what real worship of God looks like. Paul describes worship in, in Romans chapter 12. Uh, there in verses 1 and 2, he says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, the mercies of God, that grace of God, the cross of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. In view of the mercy of God, his mercy toward us, his undeserved grace poured out upon us. He says, I urge you, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And this is what he says. This is what true worship is. True worship isn't just what we do during part of our, our times that we gather together on Sunday mornings. True worship is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And what Paul is talking about here is how we live. How we live our lives, that is true worship. It's more than just having an intellectual assent to a, a certain set of facts or an emotional response to, to what it is that God has done there. It, it, it starts in those things, but it's got to be something that is real. And if it's real, it's something that is going to shape how it is that we live our lives. But again, as, as Paul says, it's not about works. It's nothing that we can do. 
It's not about our performance, but it's about allowing God to do his work within us. It isn't about us reforming ourselves, but it's about God transforming us. Paul says this, he says, don't let or don't be conformed to this age. And don't let this world determine what you look like, how you think, how you see things. Don't let this world press you into its mold, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allow God's Holy Spirit to do his work within your life, in your mind, in your thinking. Allow God's Holy Spirit to take God's word and to speak it into your life, to shape your thinking, to shape your acting, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, so that in the living out of your life, there is this visible evidence for that invisible act of the will. I put my faith in Christ. And the reason that you know I've put my faith in Christ is because you see it being lived out. But that doesn't work when you've put your faith in a golden box. A golden box doesn't have the ability to transform your heart and your living. An emotional experience on a Sunday morning does not have the ability, the power to transform your thinking and your living. The various things and experiences that we often cherish and that we associate with the worship of God are not the things that have the power. It is God himself. And it is coming into that place of being in a relationship with God himself that we need. The Israelites, they got confused, didn't they? They put their eyes on the box instead of the God of the box. And I think that we can, we can find ourselves doing the same thing and we, we get our eyes off onto the things, the actions, the, the behaviors, the rituals, the, the atmosphere, the feelings that we might have. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but they're not God. There are things that might draw us closer to him, but they are not him. And what we need more than anything is to draw near to God himself. Remember what we talked about last week. That when we draw near to God, what does he do in response? He draws near to us. He draws close to us so that we might live lives that are changed. Don't let your eyes get off onto the side issues. Don't let your eyes get off into the atmosphere, the feelings. Nothing wrong with those things. But what we really need is to draw near to the Lord himself. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, we are 
people who are prone to getting it wrong. <laughs> and so, Lord, we, we need you. We need your grace. We need your word and your Holy Spirit to shape our thinking, our perceiving, to teach us, Lord, how to draw close to you, how to keep our focus on you, to be shaped by you. God, I pray that you would keep us from putting our eyes and our hope on the wrong things. And Lord, that you would teach us what it means to walk in genuine relationship with you, submitted to you, and knowing you. God, work that in us. We pray it in Jesus' name.